Welcome to the action field and it's brought to you by Best Mind. Head to bestmind.com.au. Subscribe to our mailing list and check us out. My name's David. It's great to have you here. We've made it to episode 10. High five myself on that one. Pretty stoked with that. The Like I said a few episodes ago, the original plan was to make a block of 10 episodes is something to have on the website to give an insight into what inspires what we offer here at uh, Best Mind. And here we are at episode 10. So like I usually say, let's get straight into it. So in this first segment, we're going to talk about this beautiful book by Joshua Yeldon, which contains his artwork. He's an artist, one of Australia's best known artists. And contains some poetry that he's written. And the name of it is, it's called Surrender. And it's a journal for my daughter. So let's hear from Yalom straight away. A journal for you, my daughter. Together we will learn to fly over ourselves. And touch the wilderness inside our hearts. Beautiful sentiments there from uh, father to daughter and I love the way he says, together we will learn to fly over ourselves. The way I interpret that is, together we will learn to witness ourselves, to be able to stand back and see ourselves experiencing, which is a valuable thing in terms of self-awareness. And then that line about, we will touch the wilderness inside our hearts so the wilderness of the hearts it made me think of courage of course like i always say the root word of courage is core and core i think in latin it was means heart so you add rage to that rage of the heart wilderness of the heart so he's saying together we will learn to fly over ourselves to witness ourselves to become self-aware and in doing that Touch the wilderness inside our hearts. Learn to tap that heart source and live and act with courage. So I'm going to jump ahead a bit here, a few pages away. And he writes a beautiful poem called Sway. Stand still. Stand still and let them vanish around the bend. Can you feel yourself? leaning away from the path. This is your chance to surrender, to breathe and abandon the trail. Slip through the fence and scamper across the rocks. Traverse through blades of grass. Open your arms, awaken your senses and creative knowledge will find you. And you will understand why movement feeds your imagination. I want to touch on a few points in that poem. I love how he says to stand still, to let them vanish around the bend. I interpret that as let the crowd go and find your own path. The Joseph Campbell hero's journey, abandon the trail. Like Campbell says, if You have to take that journey. Enter the jungle at the darkest point. Abandon the trail. If there's a trail there, 
It means it's not your trail. It was set out for someone else. And Yeldum in this poem says, abandon the trail. This is your chance to surrender, to breathe, to open your arms and awaken your senses, to let creative knowledge find you. Now, Joseph Campbell said that should you choose this hero's journey, should you choose to let the others go, to abandon the trail and find your own path, know that whilst there's every chance that you'll experience bliss on this journey, there's also every chance it'll turn into a fiasco. But if you're not willing to experience failure, or embarrassment, or to look stupid, well, then stay on the path and run with the pack. Like we spoke about in last week's episode, if your personal myth happens to match society's dream, well, then like Campbell would say, you're in good accord with society, and that's great. Good for you. But if it doesn't, if your personal myth, if your own dream does not match the myth of society, well, then you've got an adventure on your hands. But here's the thing with taking that adventure. Like I said, you've got to be willing to, you've got to be willing for it to potentially be a fiasco. That doesn't mean you're not going to learn anything, of course. But if you're not willing to experience that failure, embarrass or looking stupid, well, then stick to the path. And my notes here also say that the same could be said with football, for instance, that if you're not willing to deal with poor performance or inevitable mistakes and criticism, then just stay at the local level. Kick 10 goals each week and you'll be a big fish in a small pond. Or abandon the trail, slip through the fence and scamper across the rocks as you awaken your senses, like Joshua Yeldum says. And I liken that to that choice you could make as an athlete. Well, am I going to go all in? Or am I just going to stay here and play local footy, have fun with mates? Nothing wrong with that. Totally fine. Wasn't my thing, though. I wanted to compete at the highest level. Whatever the hell that was, that's what I was driven by. To compete, remember, is the original meaning of athlete to compete for the prize. Well, I wanted to compete at the highest level. So I gave it all I had. Now, I love how Yeldon finishes this piece too in saying that should you choose to go it alone, know that creative knowledge will find you. And you will understand why movement feeds your imagination. So to know that if you keep moving, the knowledge will come. The creative knowledge will find you. And I liken that to the surrender factor. To keep moving is to surrender to the nature of the universe, which is that of constant growth, perpetual change and continual evolution. If you keep moving, the knowledge will come. Have faith. May not be pain free, but there's nothing wrong with pain. It's part of the deal. Like Joseph Campbell says, say yes to it all. If you say yes to it all, then you have a chance of experiencing the bliss. 
I'm going to skip ahead a couple of pages again. And here, Yeldum has a... He's drawn a picture. Remember, he's an artist. And he's written a little poem above it. I'm just going to read that out. In the desert, you can be a rock star. There is no better place to experiment and practice. No better place to heal. But then again, it just comes down to wondering, moving your feet, opening your heart to sing. So a little more background info on on this book, Surrender. The first half of it is made up of Yeldum telling his a brief account of his life story up to this point where he goes overseas and studies and then he comes back and goes on a journey into the desert. So here he gives an account of one of his, I guess, realizations in the desert, that in the desert you can be a rock star, that there's no better place to experiment and practice and no better place to heal either. But then it all comes down to wondering, to moving your feet and opening your heart to sing. So he chose to do that, to move his feet and to walk his ass into the desert. In fact, he actually bought a combi for like $5,000. He talks about it here. It's a killer car and he loved it. And he ends up getting stranded. Maybe this is when he wrote the poem at that point where he was stranded. But what this poem made me think of, and here in my notes, it, it, I wrote down, oh, tell the Paul Kelly story. So Paul Kelly, the Australian musician, was giving a talk one day at the Malt House in Southbank. And I used to live across the road from there. So I bought a ticket and went along to hear this talk. And Paul Kelly, man, the guy's all heart and great, gave great insight, gave an awesome talk. And I hung around till the end because I wanted to ask him a question. And few other people did the same. I let all of them go and I was waiting right till the end. And then I finally had my chance and I was like, Mr. Kelly, um, do you mind if I ask you a question? <laughs> no, really, I was like, hey, PK, mate, tell me. As a young or what advice would you give to someone who's about to enter the game of music, someone who takes music quite seriously? So someone who's essentially at the start, what advice would you give them? And he said two things. One of them is never sign anything without your lawyers present. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. Guessing he signed his way into a little bit of trouble as a young musician. And then part two was when you're trying out new ideas, make sure you're in a quiet place and that you're all alone. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Then I left and, you know, in reflection, I was like, man, that's such a great idea because as a creative or someone who's creating something, a lot of us can tend to have enough um, anxiety or self-consciousness around this as it is without having to worry about what other people will think of what we're potentially doing. So to find that quiet place and to really allow yourself to let rip with your ideas and to express whatever it is that's deep within that needs to come out. It's important. Find that quiet place and be all alone. And there was Yeldon talking about being in the desert. It's a great place to experiment, to practice. Great place to be a rock star. You can be as loud and crazy and 
expressive as you like and there's no one there to hear it just you the sand and the stars man it's quite beautiful so now i want to finish off this first little segment with another poem by joshua yellum so here we go in stillness there are no words no right or wrong only the whirling of the universe at this moment you are not alone you are warm and your hands are empty your luggage left behind, and your technology has been upgraded to the speed of a lizard. <gasps> oh man, I love that finish. And you should see the image he's got here. He's crouched right down on the ground and has zoomed right in on a lizard and he's got his hand up next to it just for some context of how small the lizard is and how beautiful it is. You can see the red dirt of of the desert, he headed inland from the New South Wales coast, I think where he lived and drove towards the boundary line. And there's a massive fence apparently to stop dingoes crossing over from the Northern Territory and the upper part of South Australia into New South Wales, this huge fence, the longest man-made fence in the world apparently. But getting back to this poem, when I first read this and I remember posting it to Instagram and saying the same thing, is that for me, this perfectly describes the experience of meditation. That as you close your eyes and sit still, there are no words, there's no right or wrong, only the whirling of the universe. So you have your stillness. The universe is all whirling around you. You could kind of imagine it like being in the uh, center of a tornado, so to speak. You can meditate in there. Because in the center, it's still. Everything can be going crazy around you. But in the center, in that stillness, there are no words and there's no right or wrong. And at this moment, you are not alone. Remember I was saying last week, as you begin to transcend in meditation, it's like you've gone from that pond of consciousness and you're now joining the river that flows down to the ocean of oneness. So you are not alone in this moment. Your hands are empty and you are warm and you've left your luggage behind. You've let go of all that's whirling in the universe to enter this space of stillness. And your technology has been upgraded to the speed of a lizard. <laughs> I know I was laughing before and I'm laughing at it. I just love that, that finish to it. For me, it's like obviously humor. And like Tom Robbins said, one of my favorite writers once, there is no wisdom without humor. But I think it also for me points towards the ancient technology of meditation. What you can experience when you enter that, that state of arousal in meditation. It's like an ancient state of arousal which made me think and I've written here in my notes currently reading Carl Jung's memories dreams and reflections in autobiography I can't express how much I love this book I really can't but it made me think of a story Jung was recounting about his first trip I think it might have actually been his first trip abroad he was probably about 35, 40 years old, and he went, Jung was from Switzerland, so he spent all his time in Switzerland crossing over into Germany a bit. So, you know, really European. 
but he got the chance in 1920, so this is 100 years ago, to go abroad. And he went abroad to Algiers. And from there, he was making his way inland to the Sahara. And I'm going to read this one passage about this energy or this state that he experienced as he kept going into the desert. And here he says, While I was still caught up in this dream of a static age-old existence, which was that feeling he got when he was in the oasis with all the other desert dwellers, I suddenly thought of my pocket watch, the symbol of the Europeans' accelerated tempo. This, no doubt, was the dark cloud that hung threateningly over the heads of these unsuspecting souls. They suddenly seemed to me like the game who do not see the hunter, but vaguely uneasy, sent him. Him being the god of time, who will inevitably chop into bits and pieces of days, hours, minutes and seconds, that duration which is still the closest thing to eternity. I would have loved to have cut straight into the music there, but I just want to jam on that passage a little bit. So when he was at that oasis where he camped for a couple of nights, he had noticed an energy around the place. And here he's recounting what he thought that energy to be. And this was based on his pocket watch, which for him was the symbol of where he comes from, which is the Europeans' accelerated tempo. Now, this is a hundred years ago, so you think about the tempo of today. It's all about achieve, achieve, do more, 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 stimulation everywhere. It's like, ah, we're crazed. And in the desert, he could sense that the desert dwellers, they could vaguely and uneasy scent this this European vibe of accelerated tempo. They could scent this god of time, chopping into bits and pieces of days, hours, minutes, and seconds, that duration which is still the closest thing to eternity. So what led me to that Jung piece there was the Yeldon poem, which makes me think of meditation. And the ancient technology he talks about at the end. And that's what made me think about Jung in the desert. How he sensed that stillness. The ancient ways. The timeless ways. And that's what I love about meditation. And entering that transcendental state of timelessness. As Yalom says, in stillness there are no words. No right or wrong. Only the whirling of the universe.
sounds there. We're gonna... Well, I was gonna say change the tempo a bit, but not really so much. I just... I guess we're gonna... Change worlds a little bit. So we're gonna go from the world of art and poetry across to football. And one of my favorite dudes in football, Paul Ruse, he wrote a fantastic book called Here It Is. And it recounts his journey from, I guess it started in his last year as a player for the Sydney Swans. And then he went straight into coaching after that. And he talks all about his coaching days throughout his time at Sydney. And then his transition over into coaching Melbourne and how he brought them out of their cellar dweller condition. They were they were wooden spooners for a few years there, I think. And as we all know now, they just won the premiership. So I would contend that Ruse actually started that. He turned it around for them. And Simon Goodwin was one of his protégés. So, like I said, this book starts with him in his last year as a player. Now, what he did in his last year as a player was that he realized that it was going to be his final year. And as such, he wanted to get more out of it than just playing time. He started to have the inkling that maybe he wanted a career in coaching. So what he used this last year for was a time to develop his principles so that he would never forget what it was like to be a player. Because one of his realizations was that he really didn't like when he encountered coaches who would address the players as if they themselves had never experience what it's like to be an AFL footballer. He really hated that. Pet hate of mine too. It's actually a pet hate of a lot of players. When you encounter a coach who seems to have just forgotten what it's like to be as a player. Of course, you encounter that all the time in the media, but the majority of these guys are fools, particularly in the older days when footballer itself was a harsher game. So naturally the commentators themselves were quite brutal. If you get on YouTube and check out some old games and they have old channel seven commentaries, you might be shocked to hear how brutal the commentators actually were today. They're, they're actually pretty good. Uh, Richo in particular is an absolute gun. Personally, I never watch football with commentary because I don't want their ideas to impact my experience of the game. I want to make up my own mind. So I never listen to the commentary when I'm at my brother's house or whatever. He likes to have it on. So generally like Richo, yeah, he's pretty much spot on. And today the commentaries are a hell of a lot nicer than they used to be. Anyway, I'm getting off track. So Ruzi used his last year as a player to write down 20 or so principles that he would like to always remember and always stick to in his time as a coach. Now, this guy is just full of wisdom. So in his last year, he was actually spending a lot more time on the bench because being old, the club was trying to manage his energy levels. And rather than him be disappointed and disheartened by spending all this time on the bench, he chose to use it to his advantage. So like Aurelius says, to paraphrase Aurelius, the obstacle is the way. So Ruzi used that obstacle to work for him. So while he was spending time on the bench, he would observe the players on the bench and note how they were feeling or how he thought they were feeling. Of course, he would speak to them as well. Him being a leader of a player 
would talk to them and observe their behavior to try and help that inform his principles and what he always wanted to remember going forward as a coach. So now we're going to fast forward to 2005. I think that last year of him being a player might have been, when was that? Late 90s sometime. And I think he either had a year off after that and then went into coaching straight after, or he actually just went straight into being an assistant coach at Sydney. So we're going to fast forward to 2005. They've had a bit of success. They've managed to get themselves into the grand final. In the finals leading up, I think they were underdogs in each one. But let's just hear from Bruzy himself, all right? So I'm going to read a bit of a passage from him. Once again, we weren't the favorites to win, but I felt we were ready to win the premiership. I'd spent time thinking about what I should say to the players at our most important meeting of the week, the night before the grand final. It had come to me that day. It often happened just after I'd meditated or while I was meditating. I had the strong feeling this was the right message. That Friday night, just after the team, coaches and support staff had dinner at the Crown Plaza on the Yarra River, I called the players together for our meeting. It was time to get down to the nitty-gritty. My message was simple, but clear. For the first time since I began coaching, I gave the players an ironclad promise. If you stick to our plan, play our way for 120 minutes and give maximum effort, then I guarantee you will win. Holy shit, Rosie. Man. How's that? On the eve of the grand final. So this is the holy grail in football. As a player, as a coach, as a supporter, it's the grand final. It's making a premiership. And he decided to do something in that most important meeting of the week. Something that he'd never done before in his career as a coach. He'd been coaching for quite a few years now. Now, this made me think of the John Wooden factor. John Wooden was a basketball coach in America. ESPN has said that this guy, John Wooden, is the greatest sports coach of all time. He was the coach of UCLA, which is a university, coach of their basketball team, and he actually coached them to 10 championships in a row. Now, in his book, which I think was called Wooden on Leadership, he wrote a few books. This was one of them, the one that I read. He made the point that he never spoke to his players about winning. Never. He was purely focused on the process, or as they say in America, the process. Focused entirely on the process. He never spoke about winning. Never. Never mentioned it leading into a championship game, and they won 10 of them in a row. Never. It was always process, process, process. What game are we in? The process game, not the results game. And here we have Paul Ruse, who it seems up until that point, up until the eve of that grand final, was the same. He never spoke about winning to his players. He never gave them a promise that if you do X, you will win. No. But what he chose to do was to trust his divine voice. Let's hear from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. 
and what I've written here. That is self-reliance. Of course, that's the name of the essay that this Emerson quotation comes from. And this Feruzzi, this began way back with him in his last season as a player, writing down his principles in order to help him always stay connected with the mindset of a player. That was hugely important to him as a coach, to never lose that connection. So let's hear from Ruzi again. That meeting was much more about mind games than tactics. The players knew the stakes. I wanted them to understand my expectations were no different from any other game. Do what we've been doing all year. I didn't want anyone to leave that room without any doubt that I believed we would win. It wasn't a long meeting, only 20 minutes or so, but my aim was to send the guys to bed on grand final eve, knowing that everything was in place. And I contend it was in place because Ruzi had learned to trust his divine spark. As much as Emerson says, let's hear from him again. A man should learn to detect and watch the gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. So whilst one can read the likes of John Wooden, like I did, and adopt their style, which is to never mention winning, there also comes a point where you have to learn to trust yourself and to run with it. You may not always be right if you do so. And Ruzi had left himself vulnerable in giving the players that ironclad, like he said, ironclad promise. He'd left himself vulnerable to being wrong. But here's the thing. And this is something that Neil Craig had said. Neil Craig also himself was an AFL coach. I had him as a coach at Adelaide as an assistant coach, and he went on to be head coach there. And now his advisor to Eddie Jones, I think Eddie Jones is his name, who's an Australian coaching the rugby union team. Neil Craig is his advisor. Craigie was saying that two of the most valuable traits of the absolute elite of the elite are vulnerability and humility, but they're tough ones to juggle when you're at the top like that. They're tough ones to embody. And I contend that Ruzi is completely okay with vulnerability. He left himself open to being vulnerable in promising his players they would win if they do X. He knew that he could be wrong, but he chose to embrace that vulnerability and trust that divine spark. Like he said, he wanted to send his players to bed knowing that he had full faith in their ability to win this game. And it makes me think of the German poet Goethe. I think that's how you pronounce it. G-O-E-T-H-E. He says, Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So trust that divine voice. Run with it. 
Be okay with your vulnerability. Know that you may not always be right, but your intention is what matters. And Ruzi's intention was to let his players know that he has absolute faith in them. If they show up on the day, stick to the plan and give full effort for 120 minutes, they will win. sounds there love the sound of an electric guitar played slowly with the amplifier as loud as hell the vibrations that come from that and the beautiful harmonic distortion what a great thing <laughs> all right let's start this last segment of the 10th episode and i'm gonna talk about my own journey not because it's something i enjoy doing talking about myself but it could give 
a valuable insight into what informs best mind. And that's the purpose of the entire podcast. So why not? So I'm going to talk about my journey specific to meditation for the most part. Now, I didn't start meditating until 2011. It was growing up as a kid brought up Roman Catholic. We went to church a lot. So I think then I was meditating without realizing it, standing in church, being still, never listening to a damn thing the priest was saying, just just daydreaming and standing in stillness. Like the Yeldon poem said, in stillness, there's no right or wrong, only the whirling of the universe. But in terms of actual intentional meditation, was that until 2011? And the way it started was that I was playing for Sandringham, playing a game out at Werribee. Was, I think maybe playing on the wing or something. Anyways, boundary throwing ball gets thrown up, gets tapped down. I go to grab the ball and someone, I think I know who it, who it was, our Ruckman, who now plays for Geelong still, accidentally, instead of grabbing the ball, managed to poke me in the eye so hard that it, pushed my eyeball back, created two fractures in my eye socket, ruptured or split my retina. So I had a detached retina and I actually went blind for a little bit. And I was in shock initially because I just went blind. I couldn't see. So with that one eye, I, I was just covering it and then I would take my hand away. I couldn't see. So I actually just walked straight off the ground, walked off the ground, and then went into the rooms with the dock and then the pain kicked in. Holy shit, I've never felt pain like that in my entire life. I remember not being able to do anything about it. I tried to sit down, didn't do anything. Lying down, didn't do anything. I was actually just walking around the change rooms, holding my eye going, ah, ah. Anyway, eventually they got some painkillers in me. It calmed down. Long story short, in terms of that injury, I had to get laser surgery to get my retina spot welded back together. That's actually what happens with laser surgery like that. And then had to get two plastic plates put in my eye socket because I kind of had two holes. So my eyeball was actually sitting lower than it was supposed to. So they jacked my eyeball back up, put a couple of plastic plates in there. And yeah, all good. Was playing again three weeks later. But in that recovery period from surgery... I actually started listening to some philosophy online by a guy who I would say has been a teacher and coach of mine for a long time. His name's Brian Johnson. He's based in America. And he was talking about meditation. And so what he had said about it from then, I started practicing on my own. That went on for years and years, about seven years. But it was kind of, it was somewhat directionless though, because I had never actually been officially taught. I had just listened to what someone else had said online and then did like a meditation 101, which was an offering that he had a class on it online and then was meditating. So that was sort of my footing in meditation, my foundational work for meditation. Like I said, it was kind of directionless though, because I'd never been taught properly, so to speak. So then it was about 2017, I think it was, my partner got me what has turned out to be the greatest gift ever in my lifetime, which was a learn to meditate course, specifically Vedic meditation with the school called Mahasoma, the teacher's Laura Poole. 
Now, at that time, I had a bit of, I was actually suffering a bit of anxiety because I'd copped a bad concussion playing country football after my VFL days. I'd gone out to play in the country, which is really a brilliant experience. Loved the country football. Came back and played local football after that in Melbourne. We had success and it was great, but like local football, it's just not my thing. Country footy, however, fantastic. It was great to be around those people and their way of life and be uh, be around those, uh, those vibrations. And I just loved the drive out there too. It was hard. It was bloody hard driving out there, but it was, it was lovely. Unfortunately, I copped a bad concussion. Actually, for then, for like two years onwards, actually was suffering a bit of anxiety from it. So my partner had bought me this great gift. Speaking of meditation as a gift, like I said a few episodes ago, Ray Dalio, dude is worth 20 billion dollars so a dude who's got pretty much everything and could give anyone anything he wanted he said the number one gift he could give anyone would be to buy them the gift of meditation to buy them a transcendental meditation course or vedic meditation same thing he said that is the greatest gift ever and this is a gift that i copped myself so on the way to learn this meditation course right i remember driving there being skeptical as hell just going man if this shit gets too fucking spiritual, I'm out of there, man. Or at least I said to myself, look, I've just got to last one day. It's a four-day course. It's got to last one day. It's two hours each day. I can get to through two hours, no matter how bloody spiritual or whatever the hell it is. Loved it. Day one. Hmm. Wow. Pretty interesting. Hmm. Went home. Did that second meditation on my own. Day two. Went there. First session. Great. Really great. Went home. Meditated on my again. Day three. The same again. Day four. Came back. We wrapped it all up and I remember driving away from there. It was in Elwood. I was on this road that leads out of Elwood and crosses over the Nepean Highway and goes through Rip and Lee. And I remember there's this vegan joint in Rip and Lee. I'd been hitting it up on prior days. Not every day to get a vegan donut, but on this last day, I thought, man, those vegan donuts look amazing. I'm going to treat myself. Got myself one and I remember driving away from there, actually laughing out loud to myself because I was just feeling so damn good after this four-day meditation course. Now, like I've said in previous episodes, that initial high, you know what? It's not going to last. It's a high, man. You're high. You've just learned all this new wisdom. You've got this new practice. And yeah, you're buzzing, man. Of course, it doesn't last. It peters off. But the real benefits from meditation work their way into your everyday being slowly over time. You learn to integrate the benefits to your life slowly over time. So you get the initial high, but the major benefits happen slowly over time. It's the gradual path. So from that, a couple of years later, I was like, yeah, I've been meditating now, steady two times a day for 20 minutes. It's going pretty good. Have not missed, don't think I'd even missed a single session, let alone a day at that point. So hit up Laura again at uh, Mahasoma. What do I do? I want to I wanna step this up. I then received my advanced mantra and then stepped up my practice to two lots of 30 minutes a day. Should you choose to do the same with the advanced mantra, I'll tell you in person what it, what it helps you do with your practice. Really super valuable thing. So I got that, got my advanced mantra practicing two lots of 30 minutes a day. And then over time I was like, I 
genuinely love this practice. It inspires great love in me, inspires wisdom in me. I was making better music than ever, feeling more connected to my heart source than ever. And that's when I had the thought, it's like, I want to teach this. Because nothing else I'd experienced in life did I think was undeniably positive, an undeniably positive practice in particular. Even with like training and exercise, you can go too hard, man. And I do still quite regularly go too hard, end up with sore and I have to taper it back a little bit. But meditation, this ancient wisdom, this ancient technique dates back 5,000 years to the Indus Valley dwellers. 5,000 years is how old it can be traced back to. Perhaps it's even older than that. Who knows? So I began my Rishi training with Laura Poole at Mahasoma. Now, a Rishi is one who sees the sounds. This is straight from my Sanskrit glossary. (laughs) A Rishi is one who can cognize the subtle impulses of nature's intelligence, which is providing the answer to Dharma. That is... What should I be doing right now? So a Rishi, like I said, can cognize the subtle impulses of nature's intelligence. And nature provides answers to Dharma, to what should I be doing right now? Now I've written here in my notes, so there's a bit of a disclaimer here with the world of spirituality you got to watch out and you got to keep an eye out for those who potentially think that because of their spiritual work that they do, that they actually know more than you. Maybe they do. But it's what they do with that knowledge, that their supposed ability of the Rishi to cognize the subtle impulses of nature's intelligence, what are they going to do with that knowledge? Now, this leads me to the words of my new teacher, Miles Neal. And he's a great video that he has on YouTube. And he says, traits to look for in a spiritual teacher. Now, he talks about this because he says it's really important because narcissism can be quite nuanced and sophisticated. So you've got to keep a close eye out for this, particularly in the spiritual world. So I've written down the first three traits to look out for should you want to find yourself a spiritual teacher. Number one, excellent conduct in terms of their discipline with the exercising of virtue. Number two, a tranquil mind because of their training in meditation. And number three, that they are not fixated on themselves and that they have a lot of spaciousness. Special note, and Miles Neal says this laughing. He says, if however they claim to have an insight into emptiness... This is going into more the Buddhist mindset about emptiness. He says, turn the other way and run. (laughs) He starts laughing afterwards. So all up, when you're searching for a spiritual teacher, meditation teacher, 
you want to see that they have a very small gap between what they say and what they do. Now, this is what you could say is integrity. You want your teacher to practice what they preach. If they're preaching virtue, well, they want to be living virtuously themselves. If they're talking about meditation, well, you want to think or get an insight into the fact that they themselves have a tranquil mind and that they themselves, they're not fixated on themselves. They have a lot of spaciousness. And for me, that spaciousness leads in to the offer of high performance coaching. It's an extension of what Best Mind offers with meditation. So if you want someone on your side, someone who embodies those first three rules of what a teacher should have, which is excellent conduct in terms of their discipline with the exercising of virtue, a tranquil mind because of their training and meditation and that they're not fixated on themselves, that they have a lot of spaciousness. Of course, I acknowledge that it's funny one should say this as they're talking about themselves and their own business. <laughs> but got to get the word out, man. That's the deal. So should you want someone like this entirely on your side, someone who is independent of, if you're an athlete, independent of your club, someone who's on your side, but is independent of your club or independent of your workplace. So a mentor or teacher type figure who is on the outside, someone who's independent of your family, independent of your friends and is entirely there for you to help you realize your full potential, then reach out to best mind. So encouragement for me personally, my ability to encourage, it's actually one of my greatest strengths. Really enjoy doing that in my football time with my younger teammates. Yes, they copped a spray here and there. <laughs> Maybe I was known for giving a harsh spray. Always followed up with a teaching point. Spoken about this in prior episodes. In the game of football, it's very important that out in the field, you deal with things in the moment. So as a leader, if you were to see a teammate of yours do something that for them is out of character or that is not in line with the team rules, you have to tell them in the moment and be firm. Challenge them to do better. Be critical. That's totally fine. Sure, follow it up with some teaching at quarter time, half time, three quarter time after the game and some love. But if the culture's right at your club, you challenging your teammates to do better out on the field in the moment, not a problem. Not a problem. So like I said, encouragement, it's actually one of my greatest strengths, my ability to give you full support. Now, like I always say with courage, it's off the heart. So we're talking about vitality here. We're talking like the source, the source of energy. So my ability to encourage you to realize your full potential, man, I'm all in. At the same time, I've got to say, I'm not here to blow smoke up your ass. Here to see you grow. To so to see you move past all resistance and fear, anything within stories that could be holding you back from expressing the fucking awesomeness that is inside you or any fear of external 
Criticism? Embarrassment? Doing wrong? Nah, the gold is all within, baby. Don't worry about that. And that's what I'm here to help you realize. So to see you realize your gift on the biggest stage, whatever that may be, that's what I'm here to do. So if you're curious and you want to know more, you can reach out to me, David at bestmind.com.au. Check us out as well on Instagram at bestmindmelbourne. And I hope to hear from you soon. So thank you all so much for tuning in. It's been absolute pleasure of mine doing these first 10 episodes. Rest assured, I'll be back in the future, but at least for a few weeks now or a couple of weeks, I have to focus on a couple of other creative projects for the business. So I've got those to take care of. But like I said, head over to bestmind.com.au at the very least, consider subscribing to our mailing list which is something that lands in your inbox every Monday morning. It's free. It's full of wisdom. It's help you to be, it's there to help you to be awesome during the week, to embody your character's strengths and to express them moment to moment to moment, like the ancient Greeks said, to live with arete, to live with excellence. Thank you so much, guys. I will catch you again soon. Bye.